Hey guys, okay, we're gonna have some fun. We're diving into the Chronicles of Narnia and how they are revealing truth and breaking us of our enchantment. Come along, let's check it out. This is the Gaining My Perspective podcast and you're hanging here with me, Wendy Cunningham. You're here to get empowered, inspired, informed, and encouraged as we navigate the everyday journey of this crazy life. Stick around, cause we're gonna laugh and we're gonna learn. And above all else, we're going to gain perspective. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Merry Christmas, everyone. We are getting oh so close to Christmas and New Year's. And it's weird. It This year feels weird to me. It does not. I feel rushed. I feel like there's stress and I want to break that off in Jesus name. I hope y'all are feeling all the holiday feels and not feeling that similar burden as I am. I don't, like I said in the last podcast, I feel that because I traveled for Thanksgiving and was late getting back and was late to shop for my Christmas tree and then it took forever to decorate, I just feel behind this Christmas season. We've only made one batch of cookies, which I ate all of them since then. And we've only watched like one Christmas movie. I just feel like it's slipping away so quick this year. But I am, we just finished school for the year 2021. Goodness gracious. As a homeschool mom, all those homeschool moms, God bless you. It's, it's serious ministry. It's a mission field. Good for you. I'm grateful, probably more excited than the kids to be done for the year and ready to have Christmas break to shove all the Christmas magic we can shove into this week before Christmas. And in the spirit of Christmas and all things just magical and majestic and trying to parallel all the things I talk about to y'all to the world that we're living in and the crazy climate and how it all ties to Jesus and, and our God in heaven and just our greater purpose here as Christians and as people trying to live our life as faith-filled as we possibly can and focused on Jesus in all the ways, I wanted to bring in and actually read a little bit of the Chronicles of Narnia to you guys because I was reading it to my children. I've actually never read the Chronicles of Narnia before. Before this moment in my life, I'm 38, made it that far. I know a lot of you have not also read the Chronicles of Narnia, namely because when I was growing up, I did not like to read. I did not. I was not someone who read for pleasure. I, I was one of those that proclaimed when I graduated college that I would never read a book again, which is just so wildly silly now to think back on because I literally read all the time and love to read and love to read what I thought I'd never love to read. And actually, little sidebars, why I love Harry Potter so much is because when I had the just blessing and privilege to study in Oxford, England, I was studying theater in 2005, 
and I was at um, Balliol College in Oxford University, and that happened to be the same moment in history when book six of the seven book series of Harry Potter came out, and I assumed that all Harry Potter books were children books, and so I'm not, I don't enjoy fantasy, or at least I did not at that point in my life at all enjoy fantasy, be it movies or books or otherwise, did not enjoy fantasy, Certainly didn't enjoy reading, so of course I had never read the Harry Potter books, and if you don't really care about them, then you really don't watch the movies. Maybe I had, I can't recall. All that to say, I was shocked to see every adult person at my college get it, buying this book and then reading a, it was, it's like a thousand some odd pages book as quickly as they possibly could. It was the, the most surreal thing ever. No one is speaking to each other. Everyone has this ginormous book and they're sitting all around campus. Everyone minus me is reading this book because of course no one wants someone else to tell them what happens at the end before they finish reading it. So there's like this marathon reading thing happening and I just thought it was so funny. And my one of my best friends I was traveling with was one of the Harry Potter fanatics. And when we left Oxford, you know, she told me what happened in, in the sixth book, which is kind of, I'm not going to say it in case anyone needs to go read them, because you do. But she told me what happened. I was like, okay, like I've heard of that person. And okay, like what's the big deal? And, and you know, she kind of was like, you just don't get it. Like you have to read them. And I was like, I will literally never read them. I'm six books behind. And those books are huge and I don't like fantasy and I'm not going to read them. So later on our trip when we were in Italy and for whatever reason we were in the hostel or I think we had a hotel um, one evening. We had already gone and gotten our, you know, pizza and gelato and we were back at the room and I said, so tell me the story of Harry Potter because I'm never going to read the books. And she, bless her heart, spent three and a half hours telling me the story of Harry Potter from book one to book six, every detail, everything. She had read them multiple times. It was, I was riveted. Needless to say, I went out the next day and bought book one and began to read them. And I read all, three of the books. I have the English version, like the England version of the first three books of Harry Potter and uh, have since read them all multiple times and read them to my children. Last year, we went through all seven books with my kids. And I know as a Christian, that's just shocking information. Some Christians are very adamantly against Harry Potter. Maybe I'll do a podcast about that sometime because I have very strong feelings that Christians totally can use Harry Potter as an excellent tool. But all that to say, I because I was so late to the game of reading fantasy, I was 21 when this happened. I just never circled back around to Narnia because I really thought I didn't like fantasy and I was not a Christian until my late 20s and so then I was really past the time to read Narnia and so here we are, I have a 10 and 8 and a 6 year old and we are reading Narnia, okay? You love my tangents, don't act like you're, you don't love them. We just are about to start the 7th book of the Chronicles of Narnia with my kids and so we just finished book 6 which is called The Silver Chair. And um, if you've never read them, they are so such beautiful parallels. C.S. Lewis is so brilliant, and he has written some adult books that I have read that are so hard to read because he's so brilliant, and he speaks in such high English, <laughs> such a high level of English. For example, um, The Screwtape Letters. You have got to read that book, The Screwtape Letters. It's also on Audible. I have read it twice physically, the book in my hands, and it is so brilliant. It is written as a um, a superior or the uncle demon 
is writing to his nephew, a new demon. So it's this like mentorship from a veteran demon to a young coming on the scene demon. And he's talking, all the letters go in that direction from the older demon to the younger one. It's a series of letters. That's what the book is. Screwtape is the demon's um, name. And it is such a brilliant insight into C.S. Lewis. Of course, it's fiction, but it's biblical in the way that he talks about, we know the enemy deceives in certain specific ways and the enemy is cunning. I will give him that. He's shrewd. Um, he's not all that clever when you think about it. It's very obvious the way that we're deceived. We're just so um, deceivable. But that book is so great, especially in this moment in history to read um, because we are walking in this just mass collective deception in so many, so many categories in our life. And so it was so fascinating. I read it, I think in 2020 for the second time, but it is written in such high language. I have to read it so slow and highlight and go back and reread. And luckily each letter is only a page or two or three long. So like you can really take it in small chunks, but it's so brilliant. And to read C.S. Lewis writing in this very high level of language in that book, and then to come into Chronicles of Narnia, which is written for children, he's just, he had such a range, that man, really quite a fantastic range of his ability to write and connect with his audience. And what I love about the Chronicles of Narnia is there are some specific moments, one or two per book, where he so captures the essence of God the Father the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and and one in particular, and honestly, I can't remember off the top of my book, maybe uh, off the top of my book, off the top of my head, either book five, uh, four or five, I believe, he writes, there's this moment where one of the children encounter the lion Aslan, which is God, this picture of God in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is in each book. And um, there's he that one of the children encounters Aslan in the woods, and it's this amazing language picture of the three parts of the Trinity being experienced all at once, but separate. It is so brilliant. I, I sh- I'm going to find it. I'm going to read it on a podcast just for you guys because it's so well written. And in in once in every book, if not two or three times. There is one of those beautiful pictures of Aslan, an encounter with Aslan that truly captures the essence of of our relationship with God the Father or Jesus or Holy Spirit. And oh, it's just the best I've ever read in in that context, in, in really understanding in such a vivid, in a fiction way, but in a real life, it's like, it's fiction, because God's not a lion. <laughs> you know, we don't encounter him in that way. But it really brings home just a personal experience, almost to the point where it brings me to tears as I'm reading it to the kids. And I have to stop and just go, you guys, what a picture that was. And we get to discuss like how cool it is that we have such a such a wonderful God in heaven. Okay, that was my my tangent for you guys today. I'm going to read from the silver chair in a different capacity because I think it is another word picture that truly captures, and I just read this last week to the kids, so it truly captures to me a picture of what we're walking through collectively with this joint deception. And I have linked in the show notes of this podcast the very lengthy podcast, and I'm going to link it on to, in two forms. If you have Spotify, you can listen to the podcast. 
If you don't have Spotify, you can find it on Rumble, but you need to either get Spotify or Rumble because you have to listen to this. And I'm gonna preface it with, it is almost three hours long. So you might have to chunk it out, but you have got to make the time to listen to this podcast. It's getting all kinds of attention because obviously Joe Rogan is like the number one podcaster ever to walk the face of the earth. Think what you will about Joe Rogan. He's not my favorite. I actually don't usually listen to his podcast because they're A, long, and B, he's a little crass for my taste. Um, and he, you know, he's not a believer to my knowledge. All that to say, this was a really, really important um, podcast. And Joe Rogan is stepping into some really brave territory right now in the last month or two. And I am, I commend him and I am behind that uh, because he's really bringing into the forefront, some questions that we're all asking and all of it's being censored. All the information is being censored. So Peter McCullough is a uh, cardiologist. He is the most cited doctor in, gosh, I want to say in the globe, but for certainly in America in terms of COVID specific studies, papers that he has published, um, trials that he's been a part of, research papers, peer-reviewed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He has done it. He is elbows deep in this thing. And he himself is vaccinated and he treats, you know, COVID patients and all, most of his patients are vaccinated. So I believe he brings a very well-balanced perspective. But he, in this interview, the, the reason why I love this is it ties in so much of the story from beginning to end as to what has happened to our country and to us collectively as a human race because of this pandemic and the propaganda machine that has gone out against us. And this strange, what I would call at this point, psychosis that has captured so many people where we've wandered so far away from truth, logic, reason, where you can have a conversation with somebody and ask a simple question of like, well, if you can still get COVID, if you can still spread COVID when you have the jab, then tell me why I have to be tested as an unjabbed person and you don't have to be tested and we can walk into the same mall or store or concert venue or get on, you know, go to a different country or whatever. Why is it different for you and me when the only thing the vaccine claims at this point is potentially, hopefully, a reduction in hospitalization or death of the person who took the vaccine? If that is the truth, which it is, there, I mean, this is not, this is not in question. That is the truth. There are a bedillion studies, including those from Pfizer and Moderna, that say that is what the claim of the vaccine is. Now, even that efficacy has waned so dramatically that it's within the mar margin of error of we could even say we're not sure if it even is doing that. We're at that point, guys. Thus, the massive push for boosters. There wouldn't be a need for boosters if the first and second dose were effective. The booster is coming because they're recognizing that the efficacy of this this protection has waned significantly since the beginning of this whole thing, which was only a year ago. The first doses of this jab were administered 12 months ago, last December, 2020. So we are one year into this. We're already three shots in. Where do you think this is going? All, I'm getting ahead of myself. When you ask that question and people cannot give you a reasonable or logical response, when people respond with emotion, when people go off the handle and, and or worse, when people say, yeah, I know, I got the jab because my parents are old. Okay, well, you know you can still get it, get COVID and spread COVID to your parents even with the jab. Yeah, I know. Okay, so if you know 
and you didn't want the, you know, like, I, explain it to me logically. We can't, we've passed. We have no logic. There is no logical explanation given why this mandate exists, why this just absolute, um, gosh, hunting down or segregating of the un- or vilifying of the unvaccinated why there's this massive you know feeling of i am shielded in some way when i have this jab like it's it just a, the people who are the most adamant about getting it can't explain to me logically and please email me please if you have a logical explanation i would love to hear it i would love to hear it truly I ask it again and again. I push back on people again and again because I would love to run back into logic or reason behind it, but there's done. It's gone. It's done. And most people know now. A lot of at the beginning, even you know, six months ago, most people didn't know that you could still get it and you could still transmit it. But now I run into the fact that most people do know you can still get it and you can still transmit it. So now that the knowledge is there, why where did the reason go? Where did the logic go? All this to say, this is why we've walked into this weird collective psychosis. And Peter McCullough talks about this on the podcast, among many other things, including hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, the the vaccine and the plan behind it, and Fauci and his scams and all of it. He talks about all of it, but he specifically talks about, which I really appreciated, this collective psychosis and that that was a plan. It was intentioned. And this is how it's been rolled out. And this is why it's been rolled out. And this is how we're being controlled and manipulated. So I wanted to read to you from the Chronicles of Narnia because I thought it was such a good word picture. And I'm going to read a couple pages. So saddle up, sit back, and uh, go along with me here and enjoy this little read aloud. Um, just to give you the quick setup, we are with uh, Puddle Glum is his name. He's a character. He's a Marshwiggle, which is a fictional character that exists in Narnia. And then we have two kids, Scrub and Pole, or, um, oh gosh, what is her name? Jill. Jill is also called Pole, P-O-L-E, and Scrub is the boy that Jill is with. They're humans in Narnia. And they are encountering this witch character. Um, who in this book represents the devil. And she has captured uh, the Prince of Narnia and she has put him under a spell and she was grooming him essentially to be the Antichrist, to come to the overworld. Currently we're in the underworld. And she's grooming him to break through into the overworld, kill everyone and take over and establish himself as ruler of the overworld under her control, okay? So this is a picture again of the devil, her, the witch, the Antichrist and what would happen in, in these end times. And she's grooming this, this prince. He has just, because of these two kids, sent by Aslan <laughs> to just, just thwart the plan, um, they have just broken the enchantment that's been over him for 10 years. And he's now uh, been set free of the silver chair to which he was just bound to. So that's the name of the book. And um, the witch has now come in to have to find him free of the chair. He's confronted her. I know you had me under a spell and now I'm going free. And these children. So now we have the witch and she has put this. She's beginning to put a spell over these, um, the three, the prince. Sorry, there's four of them. The prince, the marsh wiggle named Puddle Glum, and then Jill and Scrub. Narnia, she said. Narnia. I have often heard your lordship utter that name in your ravings. Dear prince, you are very sick. There is no land called Narnia. Yes, there is, though, ma'am, said Puddleglum. You see, I happen to have lived there all my life. Indeed, said the witch. Tell me, I pray you, where that country is. 
Up there, said Puddleglum, stoutly pointing overhead. I, I don't know exactly where. How, said the queen, with a kind, soft, musical laugh, is there a country up among the stones and mortar on the roof? No, said Puddleglum, struggling a little to get his breath. It's in Overworld. And what or where, pray, is this, how do you call it? Overworld? Oh, don't be so silly, said Scrub, who was fighting hard against the enchantment of the sweet smell and the thrumming. As if you didn't know, it's up above, up where you can see the sky and the sun and the stars. Why, you've been there yourself. We met you there. I cry you mercy, little brother, laughed the witch. I have no memory of that meeting, but we often meet our friends in strange places when we dream, and unless all dreamed alike, you must not ask them to remember it. Madam, said the prince sternly, I have already told your grace that I am the king's son of Narnia. And shall be, dear friend, said the witch in a soothing voice, as if she was humoring a child, shall be king of many imagined lands in thy fancies. We've been there too, snapped Jill. She was very angry because she could feel the enchantment getting a hold of her every moment. But of course, the very fact that she could still feel it showed that it had not yet fully worked. And thou art queen of Narnia too, I doubt not, pretty one, said the witch in the same coaxing, half-mocking tone. I'm nothing of the sort, said Jill, stamping her foot. We come from another world. Why, this is a prettier game than the other, said the witch. Tell us, little maid, where is this other world? What ships and chariots go between it and ours? Of course, a lot of things darted into Jill's head at once. Experiment House, Adela, Pennyfather, her own home, radio sets, cinemas, cars, airplanes, ration books, cues. But they seemed dim and far away. Jill couldn't remember the names of the things in our world, and this time it didn't come into her head that she was being enchanted, for now the magic was in its full strength, and of course, the more enchanted you get, the more you feel that you are not enchanted at all. She found herself saying, No, I suppose that other world must be a dream. Yes, it is all a dream, said the witch, always thrumming. Yes, all a dream, said Jill. There never was such a world, said the witch. No, said Jill and Scrub, never was such a world. There never was any world but mine, said the witch. There never was any world but yours, said they. Puddleglum was still fighting hard. I don't know rightly what you all mean by a world, he said, talking like a man who hasn't enough air. But you can play the fiddle till your fingers drop off, and still you won't make me forget Narnia, and the whole overworld too. We'll never see it again, I shouldn't wonder. You may have blotted it out and turned it dark like this, for all I know. Nothing more likely. But I know I was there once. I've seen the sky full of stars. I've seen the sun coming up out of the sea of a morning and sinking behind the mountains at night. And I've seen him up in the midday sky when I couldn't look at him for brightness. Puddleglum's words had a very rousing effect. The other three all breathed again and looked at one another like people newly awakened. Why, there it is, cried the prince. Of course, the blessing of Aslan upon the honest Marsh Wiggle. We have all been dreaming these last few minutes. How could we have forgotten it? Of course we've all seen the sun. By Jove, so we have, said Scrub. Good for you, Puddleglum. You're the only one of us with any sense, I do believe. Then came the witch's voice, cooing softly like the voice of a wood pigeon from the high elms in an old garden at three o'clock in the middle of a sleepy summer afternoon, and it said, What is this sun that you all speak of? 
Do you mean anything by the word? Yes, we do jolly well do, said Scrub. Can you tell me what it's like? asked the witch. Please it, your grace, said the prince, very coldly and politely. You see that lamp? It is round and yellow and gives light to the whole room, and hath, I'm sorry, and hangeth moreover from the roof. Now that thing which we call the sun is like the lamp, only far greater and brighter. It giveth light to the whole overworld and hangeth in the sky. Hangeth from what, my lord? asked the witch. And then, while they were all still thinking how to answer her, she added, with another of her soft silver laughs, You see, when you try to think out clearly what the sun must be, you cannot tell me. You can only tell me it's like the lamp. Your sun is a dream, and there is nothing in that dream that was not copied from the lamp. The lamp is the real thing. The sun is but a tale, a children's story. Yes, I see now, said Jill in a heavy, hopeless tone. It must be so. And while she said this, it seemed to her to be of very good sense. Slowly and gravely, the witch repeated, there is no sun, and they all said nothing. She repeated in a softer and deeper voice, There is no sun. After a pause, and after a struggle in their minds, all four of them said together, You are right, there is no sun. It was such a relief to give in and say it. There never was a sun, said the witch. No, there never was a sun, said the prince and the marsh wiggle and the children. For the last few minutes, Jill had been feeling that there was something she must remember at all costs, and now she did, but it was dreadfully hard to say it. She felt as if huge weights were laid on her lips. At last, with an effort that, with an effort that seemed to take all the good out of her, she said, There's Aslan. Aslan, said the witch, quickening ever so slightly the pace of her thrumming. What a pretty name! What does it mean? He is the great lion who called us out of our own world, said Scrub, and sent us into this to find Prince Rillian. What is a lion? asked the witch. Oh, hang it all, said Scrub. Don't you know? How can we describe it to her? Have you ever seen a cat? Surely, said the queen. I love cats. Well, a lion is a little bit, only a little bit, mind you, like a huge cat with a mane. At least it's not like a horse's mane, you know. It's more like a judge's wig. And it's yellow and terrifically strong. The witch shook her head. I see, she said, that we should do no better with your lion, as you call it, than we did with your son. You have seen lamps, and so you imagined a bigger and better lamp, and you called it the sun. You've seen cats, and now you want a bigger and better cat, and it's called a lion. Well, tis a pretty make-believe, though, to say it true, it would suit you all better if you were younger." And look how you can put nothing into your make-believe without copying it from the real world, this world of mine, which is the only world. But even you children are too old for such play. As for you, my lord prince, that art a man full-grown, fie upon you. Are you not ashamed of such toys? Come, all of you, put away these childish tricks. I have, to, I have work for you all in the real world. There is no Narnia. No overworld, no sky, no sun, no Aslan. And now to bed all, and let us begin a wiser life tomorrow. But first to bed, to sleep, deep sleep, soft pillows, sleep without foolish dreams. The prince and the two children were standing with their heads hung down, their cheeks flushed, their eyes half closed, the strength all gone from them, the enchantment almost complete. But Puddleglum, desperately gathering all his strength, walked over to the fire. 
Then he did a very brave thing. He knew it wouldn't hurt him quite as much as it would have hurt a human, for his feet, which were bare, were webbed and hard and cold-blooded like a duck's. But he knew it would hurt him badly enough, so he did it. With his bare foot, he stamped on the fire, grinding a large part of it into the ashes on the flat hearth. And three things happened at once. First, the sweet, heavy smell grew very much less, for though the whole fire had not been put out, a good bit of it had, and what remained smelled very largely of burnt marsh wiggle, which is not at all an enchanting smell. This instantly made everyone's brain far clearer. The prince and the children held up their heads again and opened their eyes. Secondly, the witch, in a loud, terrible voice, uttered differently from all the sweet tones she had been using up until now, called out, "'What are you doing?' Dare to touch my fire again, mud filth, and I'll turn the blood to fire inside your veins. Thirdly, the pain itself made Puddleglum's head for a moment perfectly clear, and he knew exactly what he really thought. There is nothing like a good shock of pain for dissolving certain kinds of magic. The reason why I thought that was so good and wanted to share is there's so many elements there of a slow and easy lull into deception. And what is easier? It's easier to rest and to fold and to go into, I guess you're right, to not use critical thinking, to not push back, to let go of what we think we know for sure, because we're not really rooted and anchored in anything for sure, right? This is us pre, we were just so primed for this pre-pandemic. And you'll notice the two times that they're broken of their trance, that they come out of their trance, is when truth is put in front of them. And both of them in this case, which I believe is true in all cases, is the truth of Aslan, the truth of God, right? The truth of God is the anchor. That's the thing that breaks them of their deception. It pulls them out of their enchantment and they can see clearly, oh yeah, what am I talking about? Of course I know there's a sun. Of course I know there's a a world, a home that I've had before. Of course I know how things were before this. Yes, I remember. Because that anchor, when you're anchored in it, when you know that it's the truth, and these people have all had, Puddleglum, Jill, and Scrub, have all had encounters with Aslan, true relationship with God, and they know that his word is true. They know that their experience with him surpasses any deception that comes on this earth. And so they're anchored in that and it pulls them up out of the deception. And what is it when, when everyone else is being deceived, it takes one person speaking the truth. One person speaking the truth pulls others out of their deception. And also at the end there, I think it's so fitting that the other thing that pulls people out of their deception is when they're hurt when they experience pain, when, when the deception itself causes an injury, it shocks the body. And it says there at the end, right? Sometimes a shock of pain is what pulls someone out of their enchantment. And Puddleglum knew this. He goes to do it on purpose. Some of us have it done to us without it being on purpose. I read the progression of these um, tweets on social media. It was sent to me, of course by this mom who had tweeted in great support of the the vaccine campaign, in great support of the mandate, took her son in, I don't know how old her son was, um, some younger than 18, took her son in when it was approved for down to age 12, was posting pictures, very excited to have vaccinated her son, posting some comments about how he is feeling really sick 
after the vaccine and that she had to take him to the hospital, but she still at that point was grateful to have gotten the vaccine. And she said that he was also grateful to have gotten the vaccine. And then there's a turn where she starts to say things in her tweets that, why was nobody told this? Why Why was I not aware that myocarditis, which is what he was ultimately diagnosed with, was a risk of this, especially for young males. Why was I not told this by my doctor? Why was this not public knowledge? Why did I feel, why do I feel deceived by this, right? So she's now very much an advocate for knowledge about the risks involved, which is all we've ever asked for, is don't make us do it because we're aware of the risks. And why are we censoring anyone who's talking about the risks of this jab? It is allowing for an environment where people are unaware, but it is the pain that she personally experiences that breaks her from her enchantment, that breaks her from this deception that has her seeing the truth very plainly and has her reflecting on the enchantment as being the deception, right? She recognizes that she has been deceived, but it is so interesting. Again, when the marsh wiggle stamps on the fire, I know it's funny to say these things. <laughs> when the marsh wiggle step, steps in the fire and, and breaks the enchantment over the other ones, what happens? But the witch who was mocking at first, being always very patronizing, which is absolutely the story coming from the CDC, coming from Fauci, this just very... Um, patronizing, condescending, you mock me, you mock science, I am greater than thou, you are dumber than me, mentality, the way that we have been given this information has been in in that thread, in that vein. And if you step into the deception, you get lifted up, you feel, not you, listener, but the people, feel this sense of superiority because it transfers to them and then they become the witch and they're speaking over other people as if they're superior and everybody else is below them is they can speak patronizingly they can talk condescendingly they can say things like if my child and your child were in an accident yours should not be allowed to go to the hospital because they're unvaccinated you can only say something like that if you're in the position of the white witch if you are feeling superior, if you've been given some sort of false position over another human, this witch, as we learn, she's killed in the story. Hate to break it to you. She is given a false position. It is not a true superiority over another human. It isn't. She is equally as flawed as these other humans in the story. Everyone is equally as flawed. We're equally as susceptible. We're equally as deceived. We're equally as Uh, sinful, right? So there is no true position of authority over another person. So the witch and those that are feeling superior over other people, that is a false position. But what happens when the enchantment is broken and she no longer has the control over the others is she becomes very vile and aggressive, right? She calls him mud filth. All of a sudden she's speaking, oh, dear dear love and sweet little prince and all these very condescending, patronizing words or or names that she is calling them, all of a sudden she calls them what she actually thinks of them, mud filth. She all of a sudden is, is brought to her actual light where we see, oh, you're not actually, you don't actually care. This isn't actually about 
let me just shed some light on you, sweet things. Like you've been deceived. It's not actually that. You actually have a very ill feeling towards these people, the White Witch does, right? Towards these characters in the story. And it's revealed when the enchantment is broken, we see actually how she really views them. And in my mind, I'm thinking of Fauci, right? Like how he actually views us is very different than this, I'm trying to save humanity. I am the science, you can't, you can't challenge me because you know challenging me is challenging science. Like what a narcissistic thing to say, right? That's neither here nor there. But it is this, we get these glimpses, we get these moments oftentimes, especially like when, if you've watched any of the hearings with Rand Paul and Fauci in Congress, you can start to see when Fauci breaks down it reveals these just quick little glimpses as to what he really thinks, how he really feels about his position over the rest of us. But yes, I love how it's just a slow process. That's why I wanted to read all of those pages to you guys is it's a slow process. It's not all at once. And at the beginning, when Jill says she could feel the deception, she could feel the enchantment coming over her, but the fact that she knew it was happening brought her awareness to the fact that she was being deceived, right? Just, she knew it was happening. She could feel that it was, that she was being enchanted or deceived. And then later she says that when you're fully deceived, you don't feel that way anymore. There's no sense that you're being enchanted because there's no fight against it anymore. You're fully in. You have fully come under the spell. And again, to point you back to Peter McCullough and his uh, podcast with Joe Rogan, he talks about this happening on a large scale, that there's this slow ushering in of this deception, right? It starts with simply just questioning and driven by absolute fear. There is a reason why the truth of God, the Bible says again and again and again and again and again and again and again. If my kids were here, I'd be like, what is it? What would the Bible tell you about this? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The reason why the Bible says that so many times throughout its pages is because only in fear can the enemy do his work. The enemy uses fear to deceive us. That's why God's advice, Jesus' Jesus's advice to us is always do not be afraid, especially when something fearful is happening. When the angel appears to Mary to tell her, hey, P.S., Holy Spirit's going to knock you up and you're going to have yourself a little baby. I know this is like a lot. I'm a big giant angel. First words out of his mouth. Do not be afraid. I know that this is a startling thing. <laughs> I just appeared to you and I'm big and giant and bright and I'm in your room probably scared. Do not be afraid because if you slip into the fear, you're not going to receive the truth. And I need, you to, I need you to posture. That's what the angel's telling her. I need you to posture in a place you can be in awe but don't be afraid. Don't be in fear. Do not be afraid because fear is the mechanism the enemy uses for deception. And here we see it. We start with this massive amount of fear and I fell prey to it. We all did. I was very afraid at the beginning of this. I did not know what to think. I'm checking the numbers every day. Is it in Tennessee yet? You know, has it come over, you know, remember the beginning when we're tracking the blow up in Washington state and then in New York, we're seeing the case counts go through the roof. People are being overwhelmed in the hospital. We all got swept away. We all got swept away. And I was afraid. I was afraid. And then I had to pull back, right? It was like, I could feel I'm being deceived. I'm being deceived. It was this moment Jill's talking about in the story. 
I can feel it coming over me. I can feel that I'm losing, I'm losing control of my rational brain and I'm falling victim to whatever they're telling me on the TV, irregardless of whether or not it makes sense anymore, irregardless of whether or not the, the reasoning behind it makes follows rational thought or any kind of logic. And again, when the vaccine first came out, the first thing I did was go look at the Pfizer trials and the Moderna trials. What were the trials? What were the results of it? What can I expect from it? And right out of the get-go, guys, we saw from those initial trials that the only thing that was confirmed was that it reduced in only a certain age range, no less, that it reduced hospitalization, and mortality. Potentially, it was a small test base, but that was the only thing. It, it showed zero information, conclusions, nothing, no, no conclusions drawn about its transmissibility right from the get-go. It was a claim that came out of Fauci and the CDC's mouth, but if you read the trial, there was never any evidence that suggested this thing was going to disrupt or prevent transmission from one person to the next. And there was never any information that showed that you would not get COVID if you had the jab. That was not a part of the original trial. The only part of the original trial was that it would potentially reduce hospitalization or death. Well, that proves that you had to get it. You had to get the virus in order for it to prevent hospitalization or death. So the original data was very clear to me and yet the deception coming out of the mouth was, tell me about this. Tell me about your son. I don't remember that there is a son. Oh, no, no, no. What you mean is a lamp. There's a lamp and you're just picturing a son. Do you see this just slow challenging? But if you never got yourself anchored in truth, if you never went and looked for yourself, if you don't know the truth of God, then you, you are easily swept away. And so my challenge is, let's come back. It's not too late. Let's stick our feet in the fire. Let's wake ourselves up and those around us by speaking the truth, by reminding people of what's going on here and doing it even more and anchoring even further. If you haven't read the Bible, get to it. Get to it. If you're a Christian who hasn't read the Bible, what's up with that? And if you want to read the Bible, I'm going to read through it starting January 1 with a group. Email me. If you want to do a Bible study, I'm starting one in January. Email me. I'd love, it's on Zoom. Anywhere you are, I'd love to include you. Email me. I want to, I want to help you with this journey. I want to help you guys anchor. I want to help you guys find the answers. I want to help you guys find the information so that you know the truth, so that you're awoken from the, tra the trance, the enchantment, whatever you want to call it, it's deception, so that you can see very clearly. And then when you make your choices, then you can make them soundly and you don't have to feel defensive or emotional about your choice to get XYZ or not get XYZ. It becomes very clear because there's rational truth and logic behind it. I love you all. I hope this served you. Hey guys, thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate this podcast and tell all your friends. And of course, catch me over at gainingmyperspective.com. Heavenly Father, guide us in this time. As we ask again and again, week after week, day after day, hour after hour, Lord, break through the deception. Let your light shine in the darkness. We know that the darkness does not overcome 
the light. It never has. It never will. You are the light. You are the anchor point. Let us focus on you. Let you, let your light, your word be our guide and show us where we need to step and and how to break out of this trance that we're collectively in, Lord, and how to be brave enough to speak truth and to stand in that truth despite the persecution that will come. We know it will. You have promised it. Despite that persecution, let us stand strongly and boldly and firmly in your truth, in your light, so that we can be awake ourselves, but awaken those around us. Awake, O sleeper. Amen.